Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the Governance Update. I'm here, I'm ready in the VLGA Connect studio for another Governance Update brought to you by Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. I'm having a little bit of trouble making contact with Steve Cooper, I think I think he's on the road. St Steve, I, I'm not sure if you can hear me. I can't see you, but oh, you're not- oh, Sorry, I can hear you, Chris, oh, hold on. Come in, Steve. Oh, oh, there you are. I'm just reading this book, Chris. You're, and where are you? That looks a lovely spot to be reading Ian McCormack's new book. Well, um, I'm in Darwin. It's very, I was told at seven o'clock this morning, it's very chilly here. It's 18 degrees and feels like 15. Um, at the time we're recording, I think it's probably closer to 20. It's lovely. Yeah, you look like you're, you're doing it tough. Uh, what takes well, you to Darwin, Steve? Well, you're just trying I, to get away so you can read that book. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether I should read. This is um, Ian's book about the DNA of great leaders, and I'm stuck somewhere between Aptitude 8, Keep Your Ego in Check, and Aptitude 9, Make Mistakes, Move On, which we get a bit of practice at as well. <laughs> uh, and and I'm, noticing, I'm noticing the hat and I'm noticing the Paul Kelly T-shirt, and I'm noticing the background. Too. It just looks so idyllic there, Steve. I'm jealous. Well, that's the one sort of palm frondy thing in the backyard. So I've sort of conveniently um, located the camera in that direction to give that tropical feel, Chris. Well, um, I'm just so pleased you've been able to carve out some time out of what's clearly a very busy day for you, uh, Steve, to join oh, us on the governance update. Wouldn't miss it, Chris. Thanks for that. <laughs> so let's uh, let's catch up from, from last week. Now, we, we talked a bit about uh, the Scott Morrison Ministries issue and how that all could happen. Uh, you've seen the Prime Minister's response this week. Any thoughts on that? Um, I, I'm, I've been a bit distracted about the Prime Minister, Chris, I should say. Uh, why, why is that? Well, the goings-on of, of this week where um, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, uh, I don't know, he got a standing ovation at the Enmore Theatre because he was at the Gang of Youths concert. He got a standing ovation for chugging a beer. And I found that rather upsetting. <laughs> I did. What, why, why are you upset by that? Well, I, as you know, Chris, I was at the Gang of Youths concert in Melbourne the week before and um, I stood up and chugged a bottle of water and no one could care less. But... <laughs> well, all's right with the world, I would have to say. Well, it to just that. sort of said there wasn't too many listeners of our show at that concert. <laughs> And I must, uh, I must uh, confess that despite that previous discussion about gang, gang of Youth, I still haven't added them to my Apple Music playlist. So one of these days I'll, I'll check and see what the fuss is about. That's fine, Chris, but just be aware it comes with a language warning, some of those songs. Oh, anyway. oh okay. All yes. right. Might, but back to, um, back to the events with the Prime Minister. Hasn't it been an interesting, or the former Prime Minister, it's been an interesting week? Well, it has. And, and what have we got now? An inquiry coming to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, we have. And look, I don't know, Chris, let's, let's not get too stuck on it. But I think the thing I find disappointing in the impact for local government is that where, you know, government runs on conventions and people sticking to conventions and we're now going to fix a problem by making a law. And it seems to me that that's an endemic issue that when we have behaviour that isn't up to the mark, that we go and make another law. And yeah. in some ways, that's not sustainable. What we should be doing is holding people account to values and behaviours. 
I did. Well, on that, that's that's a good point. And and on that, we talked last week about getting people to provide us with their insights into behaviours that don't quite meet the test of uh, misconduct, but are are pushing the boundaries, etc. You know, it might be passive aggressive sort of behaviour. Um, I've had a little bit of feedback. Have you had some? I've had some terrific feedback, Chris. We're still compiling our list, so whatever feedback we've got has to be. Uh, uh, has to remain confidential for the time being. So anyone that's got um, that wants to private message us, remembering we're not um, we're not throwing this out to an open uh, an open discussion at this stage. But um, yeah, we've had we've had a good start, but we could still get some more. All right. So keep those thoughts coming in, and we have had a, a few, which is great. But it would be nice to get some more uh, insight into yeah. what are those sorts of things that people do, and we're talking mainly elected reps here that. Um, you know, on the face of it, that's not that bad. But um, as perhaps as part of repeated sort of actions, it it, it, it it's a pattern of questionable behaviour. Go to conflict. I mean, um, Lencioni in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, um, Chris talked about his first um, step to address dysfunction in, in a team is around building trust. So this might be political behaviour that in fact erodes trust. Um, sort of a recurring theme in Ian's book, by the way. Yeah. It's yeah. the first time in a while I've had someone introduce Patrick Lencioni into a, a conversation uh, that made me feel all warm and fuzzy. Thank you, we Steve. Do. Now, uh, Yarra Council's been in the news this week, and I'm not sure whether it's justified, to be honest. There's been a lot of coverage about Yarra's governance rules and uh, the changes that were adopted, a lot of focus on barriers in the council chamber, separating the gallery from the council, etc. What did you make of all that? I'm glad you mentioned the two parts of it, Chris, because I thought the um, the row of desks separating the community from the uh, from the councillor group um, was like a, a really interesting image, and I had to think there must have been a reason for that. But certainly, the council copped some stick um, over the sort of uh, the imagery of of the uh, of that barrier being there. Um, as far as the um, governance rules, Chris, I've got to confess, I thought it was a storm in a teacup. Yeah, yeah, I must admit, I've had some feedback uh, to that effect as well. And and look, if you didn't read the Herald Sun or to some extent the Age or listen to Talkback Radio, um, you probably wouldn't get all that hype that's gone with it. Mind you, I wasn't at the council meeting. I'm sure you weren't either because you've been travelling. Oh, absolutely. But, it, you know, and I think we've talked about this before, Chris, that, you know, if a council goes through a process of reviewing its governance rules in relation to the conduct of meetings, um, what would they say? As surely as night follows day, one of the issues will be um, that dynamic around how are you going to manage public questions and submissions? And who would have thought that at Yarra there's been a dynamic around how you manage public questions and submissions? Yes. Um, uh, look, the council makes the point. Uh, the rules were put out for consultation. I think they said over 70 pieces of feedback. I've seen some of the feedback which was very supportive. Obviously, we're aware of some of the feedback that wasn't because the press has perhaps given that a bit more coverage. Um, Yarra's not the only council that has had governance rules which have introduced some tweaking to those public sort of participation elements. It's happened at Wodonga, it's happening at Ballarat, there's a whole range of other councils. They're not getting quite the attention that this one got, which is interesting in itself. No, well, they, you know, what are they trying to do? They're trying to limit the number of questions by an individual so more people get to ask questions. They've dialed it back from three minutes, uh, five minutes to three minutes in terms of the time allowed to ask a question. And they're 
asking that or requiring that the questions be submitted a bit earlier, which means that people will get better answers or answers at all to their questions rather than um, them just being last minute. Um, and what's the flip side of that? The last minute thing, that's the trying to catch someone out, uh, going for, as Ian McCormick would say, the gotcha moments, perhaps? I think it is the gotcha moments. And you know, um, Chris, having been in this space, that if a question's asked in the chamber, you're bound to provide an accurate answer. And if you can't provide an accurate answer, then we'll take the question on notice. Well, if people are required to submit the questions a little earlier, then... Um, there's a better chance that the officers will be able to provide an answer to the meeting. So, yes. yeah. you know, as I said, I see it as quite unremarkable, noting that there are numerous other ways for people to raise questions and, you know, have their concerns addressed inside, you know, the complaints mechanisms of the council and externally. Yeah, I think that last point's really, really relevant and well made. All right, uh, let's move on from that. Um, Steve, I'm not sure if, you've, if you're up to date with uh, the roundup this week. I had Kerry Wilson on the program to talk about the Put Her Name On It uh, survey that's being run through Gender Equity Victoria and Geographic Place Names. All councils in Victoria now should have this survey to try and understand uh, all of the naming that's happened across about 250,000 uh, places and roads etc. We talked about this coming a few weeks ago on the program. Yeah, Chris, I thought it was um, particularly interesting, you know, Kerry's point that there are three of the 79 councils that have sort of names acknowledging um, the contribution of women, um, which is not too many, and uh, 29 with Indigenous names. Well, well, yes, and uh, lots more named after uh, historical male figures, etc. But it's as she makes the point, it's not just the council names here. It's about going far deeper and more broadly across street names, road names, uh, I guess monuments, uh, buildings, you know, community centres often get named after local people, etc. The whole gamut. Yeah, and... I hadn't sort of realised until I started doing some work with the Interface Councils a few years ago, Chris, that most of the Interface Councils, of course, because of the subdivision activity, have quite um, advanced uh, naming policies and processes because their community would expect that. There might be other councils where this is sort of uh, less important or seemingly significant issue, but the notion of just having a good process um, to consult and to consider um, the options are available and the impacts of um, of a naming policy, you know, it is worth, uh, worth a bit of an investment in time, I suppose, Chris. So uh, anyone working in councils, uh, keep an eye out for that survey. I understand it's gone to all the 79 CEOs and it will make its way into the organisation and hopefully is given the attention it uh, deserves, understanding that, you know, there's lots of competing interests, of course, and it might take some time. Uh, it's pretty... Uh, detailed process, I'm sure. Absolutely. It's a long game. Mm. Yeah. S Steve, uh, there's been a new alliance of councils formed uh, very recently called the M9. This is nine inner metro councils with the City of Melbourne at the centre, and they've banded together to work on a range of strategic objectives, and the timing obviously is uh, of, of interest with a state election around the corner. Oh, and also a, a new federal government, Chris. So uh, we've talked about this in, or we've touched on it before when a couple of Northern Victorian councils aligned with some, uh, uh, some a couple of Riverina councils to um, to agree to, you know, to lobby collectively. So I think there is a, a definite recognition that, you know, if councils are going to lobby 
that um, doing it in a structured way um, as a wider body is the way to be effective, um, probably more so than, you know, sporadic notices of motion. So uh, for those interested, uh, we'll pop some links in the show notes, but the councils in this alliance are Darabin, Hobsons Bay, Maribyrnong, Melbourne, Mooney Valley, Moreland, Port Phillip, Stonington and Yarra. They're listed alphabetically for fairness, obviously. And uh, their strategic priorities they'll be working on together are active transport, affordable housing, economic recovery, community resilience, waste and circular economy and renewable energy. Not too many surprises in that list, I wouldn't think. Not at all. And Chris, I love that it's done alphabetically because if in doubt, list alphabetically is usually a good rule. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, well done to the M9 alliances, uh, alliances. There's a smaller partnership that's been renewed this week. I just mentioned this in passing. Aubrey City and Wodonga councils have been working together in a, I think it's called a two cities, one community partnership, uh, which has uh, been around since 2017. They reviewed it earlier this week and they've renewed it this week with a I guess a ceremonial signing by the two mayors who I think also work together on uh, on radio up there. I think they do. Um, and that's a long-standing partnership um, between those two councils, those cross-border councils, Chris. Chris, there's a bit going on further up the Hume Highway too. Yes, uh, yes, Steve, there is uh, in a couple of ways. So Kudamundra Gundagai, you might uh, recall we mentioned this, I think, a few weeks ago. A commission report came back to suggest that that uh, merged council should demerge, and there's been a local campaign for that to occur for some time. This week, the local government minister in New South Wales, Wendy Tuckerman, has announced that that demerger will take place and that will become effective at the next election in September 2024. So there's a, a conscious and legal uncoupling happening there, Steve. And that's a really big call by the New South Wales government, which had um, copped uh, quite a bit of political heat over its council merger processes, Chris. So, um, and you'd have to say pretty unusual for um, demergers to occur, probably uh, um, mansfield is the most recent one I can think of in Victoria. Yes, uh, the, uh, the the former Delatite, which uh, existed for a brief period in our in our history. Um, Snowy Valley's regional council, I understand, is a bit miffed about this, uh, Steve, and you may or may not recall that they'd gone down a similar path a year or two back. I think there was even a recommendation from a from a process that they demerge, which was not supported. Uh, ultimately by the Minister of the Day. We've got a different Premier and a different Minister since then, and I think Snowy Valleys is talking about at, at least uh, investigating uh, the costs of a process to try and reactivate that, uh, that demerger option. Oh, there'll be some furious copying of the Kudamundra um, Gundagai report, Chris, to see what worked there, I'd imagine. Yes, I'm sure. But uh, you, actually, the, the difference, perhaps quite considerably, is in the change of Minister and and Premier. Um, but we'll wait and see what happens with that one. Yes? Sorry, are you saying that these things might be personality, not policy-based? Uh, don't you put it's words in me. my mouth. Don't you put words in my mouth, Mr. <laughs> Cooper. I didn't say that. <laughs> anyway, you know, things change, as we you know. know, and we'll we'll keep an eye on that. Um, it's all about aren't... context. <laughs> yes. Um, things aren't changing at Golden Plains Shire Council, Steve. We've got another, it must be the season for CEO contract renewals, because I know there's a few in the works and we've got one announced this week at Golden Plains where Eric Brassless has been uh, reappointed four and a half years. Um, obviously, the timing's been carefully considered here. His contract was to expire in December. He'll now be with the council through until January of, uh, June, I think it is, of 2027. 
Uh, yeah, the, obviously there has been some thought given to the four and a half years and maybe the council thought that June is a more, um, uh, in fact, in some ways it is. It seems a, a more sensible time to wind up a contract um, yeah. than yeah. December. Yeah, so well done to uh, Eric. That will oh. mean he'll, he'll have been there for nearly 10 years uh, if he sees out that next contract. Yeah, and sorry, I was quite distracted by the four and a half years, Chris. Yeah, well done to, to Eric. I had the pleasure of sitting on a panel, an LG Pro um, webinar panel with Eric earlier in the year. So good luck to him. Uh, at uh, Greater Geelong, as you'd be aware, Martin Cutter recently announced he's stepping down, I think at the end of September, it's certainly next month, and the council this week has formally determined that uh, one of its current uh, second levels, uh, Karina Filand, will step into the role as an acting CEO when Martin leaves next month, while that recruitment process takes place over a period of time. Um, congratulations to Karina, and I would have presumed, Chris, that will be a inverted commas, closely watched, close inverted commas recruitment process. There'll be oh, a lot of interest in that role. Very much so. And look, there's a couple of them, to be honest. So Greater Dandenong will be closely watched. Uh, mm. And uh, Port Phillip, I'm sure, will be closely watched, as we know Peter Smith is leaving there to go to uh, to Darabin. So watch this space and rest assured, as things develop, we'll tell you about it here on this program. Oh, and it'll be on the uh, on the Local Government News Roundup website, Chris. I'm sure you'll be furiously keeping up to speed with all of those developments. Most definitely. We'll be trying. We'll be trying to anyway, uh, Steve. Um, I've got a couple of interstate news stories I wanted to get your thoughts on before we wrap up, Steve. Um, out of Tasmania, where it is election season coming up, uh, council elections in uh, October. Um, I did not know this until this week. Tasmania is the only state, apparently, in Australia that does not have a requirement at the local government level for caretaker provisions to be in place. Does that surprise you? Well, why would you need a caretaker policy, policy, Chris? What what possible reason, you know, would you, would you have? Well, for... it sounds like you've been listening to and talking to the councillors at West Tamar Council, Steve, because what, that's their view. What what's a what's a caretaker policy going to do to them, Chris? So, um, just a bit more context. So, the minister has said he'd like there to be caretaker provisions in place, but it's not uh, legislatively required yet, and that will take some time. But he has asked councils to voluntarily put caretaker provisions in place. So, in that light, uh, a caretaker policy was presented to the councillors at West Tamar last week, I think. Uh, the councillors said, why do we need this? Um, especially one, I think, said uh, that means we wouldn't be able to make any significant decisions in the lead up to the election. So therefore, they've, re <laughs> they've rejected it. I, I was a bit gobsmacked, to be honest. Oh, it, it's probably an outrageous sort of policy, Chris, that might, you know, um, articulate how they shouldn't be using the resources of the council to support their re-election. Well, you'd, you'd expect so. And we're not suggesting that they would do that. They're just no. saying we don't need a policy to tell us how to operate. Thank you very much. Not, not for a moment. But, Chris, one of the things I was thinking about with that is that I believe, um, and you might have said, the council elections in Tasmania in October, we're now in August, always fraught trying to deal with a caretaker policy as you get so close to an election. I've always thought it's a a good thing to have as much clear air as possible um, with sort of uh, decision. Well, it makes sense to think about it after when it's fresh after an election and get it enshrined in a code of conduct as, as happens in Victoria. 
Oh, and even if um, people are acting with the best will in the world, it really um, supports kind of the public perception that the council has made the decision in the interests of the organisation, not the individuals concerned. That becomes very difficult if you're trying to do it only a few months out. Yeah. And another one, as the uh, as the election looms in Tasmania, you're familiar with the Darren Fairbrothers story, the councillor at Waratah Winyan who's been suspended for three months, maximum penalty allowed under the conduct provisions, after being found guilty of prohibited behaviour. I keep saying that and people say, well, what did he actually do for those who haven't heard? Well, he, indecent exposure, basically, uh, yes. on, on a beach. Uh, quite widely publicised. Um, some people have called for changes to the eligibility requirements to uh, to, to uh, remove the possibility of a person who's been convicted in that way from being able to stand for council. At the moment, he can he can run again. Um, the minister has made it very clear there's no time to prepare and consult and introduce changes of that nature before this election. Chris, can we just call it northern exposure at the risk of breaching your copyright? In It'd future. be southern. It'd be southern, wouldn't it, Steve? Well, You're it's up in the there northern in Darwin. Stuff. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm remind I'm fondly reminded of that, of that rather excellent TV show a few years ago about the yes. fellow found himself in Alaska. Anyway, um, I think we, this is a recurring theme for us. I I think there is a my sense of this issue is it's really um, important that we not you know we not overreact when things happen and think that we have to legislate. Um, because when we legislate, we set in place a whole lot of rules and if there's not the appropriate sort of, you know, legislative impact work done, potentially create a whole lot of other consequences. My suspicion, Chris, is that the electors um, will be alert to what's happened and the process may well look after itself. Yeah, I think you're probably right there, Steve. It no. um, remains to be seen, of course. Certainly review the eligibility requirements from time to time and feed that into the mix in a sort of measured approach. I kind of think rush legislation can be rather forced. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And a couple of quick notes at the mayoral level from interstate. Uh, there's a new mayor at Hawkesbury City, which is on the sort of northwest uh, metropolitan fringe of uh, uh, Sydney. You'll recall uh, Patrick Connolly resigned as mayor, staying on as councillor uh, a couple of weeks ago now after that terrible home invasion, which has had uh, a, a, a strong impact from, from what I can see on, on him and his family. So he stepped down as mayor. Sarah McMahon was elected as the new mayor this week and will serve out the term, which I think goes through until 2024. Uh, yes, January 2024. Yeah. And, and Chris, there's um, no information to suggest that that home invasion was related to uh, the former mayor's council activities. Um, I think no. we should just make that point. Yeah, no, not not that I've heard. I think it was just a very un unfortunate um, um, crime that occurred. Yes. Um, and uh, up at the Whitsundays, what a lovely place to be uh, having an election. Uh, Julie K. Hall has been declared the winner of the mayoral election for Whitsunday Regional Council. That uh, election occurred a couple of weeks ago, but the result was declared on Thursday of this week. Well, and congratulations to both those mayors. It's probably a bit chilly down in the Whitsundays, Chris, but anyway, who's bragging? Compared to where you are at the moment, <laughs> I gather it probably is. All right. Um, where are you heading off with your Paul Kelly shirt and your hat today, Steve? We're just going to wander into town and see what we can find to do, Chris. It'll be a balmy 32 degrees, apparently. Uh, so that'll be heart, nice. My heart bleeds for you. All right, you, you enjoy the top end and uh, you, you'll be back uh, in much cooler climbs next week, will you, for the government's no, update? 
I'll still be here. Oh, so you? okay, um, all right. We'll see how we go. We might Hopefully. be same time, same channel. Hopefully, we can track you down. So that's me, Chris. What have you got lined up? Oh, there's a bit happening, actually, Steve. Thank you for asking. Well, our state election series, the VLGA Connect state election series starts uh, today as we record this. Our first session is a live panel with the uh, Shadow Ministers for Local Government and Planning, uh, Richard Reardon and Ryan Smith. There's more to come in that state election series, so look out for that from VLGA Connect and make sure you register on the VLGA website to be part of that. Uh, next week, there's a bit happening. The uh, There's a director and CEO's forum uh, that LG Pro's putting on that I know Denise, the president of the VLGA, is participating in, and I am as well. I'm looking forward to being part of that and hopefully recording a few chats for uh, for VLGA Connect and for the Roundup podcast, Steve. So there's a bit to keep us busy coming up. Look forward to, look forward to uh, watching those, Chris. That'll be good. Thanks, Steve. You have a great week, and uh, we'll look forward to being back with uh, more VLGA Connect very soon. And thank you to Hunt & Hunt Lawyers, our terrific sponsors here on the Governance Update. Bye for now.